The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're covering the doctrine of providence tonight, and um, it's a, a very exciting study. We started last week, and um, I'm encouraged by this. I tell you, there's very few um, uh, doctrinal studies that could be as encouraging and as strengthening to you as realizing the sovereignty of God in your life, the sovereignty of God over the events uh, that you're facing in your life and the events that are worldwide, big things happening that make huge headlines in the newspapers and that are the top stories in the uh, evening news. All of these things are ruled, overruled by God. Uh, he's our king, and he uh, is in charge. And that's very comforting, isn't it? And then the events that you face in your lives. Now, we started talking about this last week, but tonight we're going we're gonna to dig into it even more, and we're going to get into some of the difficulties with the doctrine of providence, specifically the problem of evil, how we face evil in our lives and, and, and in the world around us. And if God is good and overrules all things and is sovereign, then how do we explain some of the things that happen? And we're going to get into that tonight. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this evening and for each of the people that have come tonight. Father, we pray that you would bless this time of study. We're grateful, O oh Lord, for every moment that we have. We know that time is precious and it's short, Lord. It flees and we need to redeem the time and make the most of every opportunity. And I pray that as we study tonight, we do it for your glory, that the minds of the people that are here in this room and in the other seminars would be stirred up and charged up to listen to your word and to think deeply about you to be challenged and to understand who you are and how you work in the world. Be with me then, protect me from error, and, and help all of us to think carefully about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you all get one of the outlines? There were some up at the door, and if you, if you need any, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. We're looking at the doctrine of providence, and uh, this is a different handout than I gave you last week. I summarized briefly uh, the things we covered last time. Grudem, Wayne Grudem defines the doctrine of providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which He created them, two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing them uh, their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and, th and third, directs them to fulfill His purpose. So He summarizes the doctrine in three major subcategories or headings. The doctrine of preservation, of concurrence and of government. We covered the first two last week. The doctrine of preservation says that God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. In other words, he keeps the universe going. If God stopped exerting his effort and his action and his, his will toward the universe, it would stop existing. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And that idea itself, if you play it out to its logical conclusions, is explosive. It really is. He's constantly upholding every atom in the universe, keeping it together in its form and in its shape and its structure. That's a very interesting doctrine. We talked about that last time. We talked about how God, secondly, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Uh, he runs alongside of creation to some degree. I guess that's what concurrence means. He's operating along with the things that are happening so that everything that happens fits into his plan and he's active in it. Scriptural support for this, Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, we tried to delineate what that everything entailed. So we started to break it out into categories. For example, this uh, applies in the area of inanimate creation. For example, grass. God causes grass to grow for cattle. We talked about that last time. You say, how could God possibly be active in the growing of grass? What a boring thing. You know, it's almost a byword for boring. You know, it's like watching grass grow. Well, the fact of the matter is, according to the Scripture, it's God that makes it grow. He enables grass to grow so the cattle can eat it. 
Yeah, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, this grass needs to grow so some cow can come chomp on it and chew it up. But that's God, and He does that. He also causes His rain to fall on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's active in inanimate creation. Well, what do we mean by inanimate? Just the physical stuff, grass and sunshine and rain and wind and those types of things. Weather. Um, God is always doing interesting things in weather, isn't He? I love to look at the weather. I mean, it was interesting tonight. As the storm started yet, you get the feeling there's about to be something. Was it raining when you all came in? Yeah, a little bit. All right, but I'm, I'm just, I love to watch it. Look out the window and you're never sure what's going to happen. I remember one day, uh, about a year ago, I looked outside. Actually, uh, somebody came and said, look outside. And, and it just looked green outside. The sky looked strange, kind of an odd color. And I put the window up and all of a sudden, the curtains started getting sucked out the window. The air pressure was so low outside that the pressure inside the building was far greater than that outside. And it just pushed the, the curtains straight out. It was, it was an amazing thing. It didn't last long, but it was some kind of really low pressure area going through at that moment. Really striking thing. But the Bible says that God rules over these things. He's in charge of the ebbs and flows of air in the world, the wind. It blows at his command. Also, he's, he rules over animals, uh, animate creation, animals. Uh, he feeds the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, says the Scripture. And so they live at God's command and at his provision. He provides for them. But they also die at his command. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And so there it is. Um, it's amazing how providence works. I mean, what providence means is that things happen you could never predict. And you could never really think. You remember a few weeks ago we were talking about the doctrine of creation? Remember? And I brought in a physical uh, uh, prop talking about uh, irreducible complexity. Do you remember what it was? It was a mousetrap. Well, uh, earlier this week we found evidence that we might have a mouse out in our pantry storage area outside. And so Christy said, do you have anything that might be... I said, I have just the thing. And I went, I was at Walmart when I bought them for a buck thirty. I said, what am I going to do with these after the lecture tonight? I have no purpose for them. Well, God had a purpose. And so uh, uh, God ordained that a mouse died last night in my pantry. And he ordained that I throw it away in the garbage. And the garbage came and collected it today. So uh, that's how providence works. That mouse had to die because it was eating my food. And so that's it. So... God rules over this, and so a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God, and it seemed to be God's will for that mouse to die. Uh, at any rate, also seemingly random or chance events are controlled by the providence of God. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. All right, that's, a, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Every time you roll a dice, it comes up the way God wants it to. Uh, there's no random things. You say, how could that be? And I actually was thinking about that. When you roll a dice, you have a dice in your hand and your hand is a certain temperature and you put a certain amount of pressure on the dice and you let it go at a certain point and it tumbles for a certain length across your fingers and when it rolls, it spins and hits and the temperature and the, and the hardness of what it lands on, all of that's figured out and it ends up a five or a six or a two, whatever God says. And you say, does God really get involved at that level? Yeah, he does, actually. That's what the verse says. You say, why could God possibly care whether it comes up a two or a three or a five? Well, all I'm saying is, and this is, this is the idea you have to get across with the doctrine of providence, is that the universe, the big, huge universe, is made up of really tiny little things. They're called atoms, right? So also history is made up of seemingly insignificant, tiny little events that add up to big, big uh, outcomes. And everything is understood by God. We don't understand one millionth of a percent of it. We don't understand any very little of it. But God does. He's got it worked out. And for some reason, it's better for it to come up five than two or three at that moment. You will never know why. But God cares about these kinds of things. And so he rules over all things. God, uh, what that means is that there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. We talked about this last time. There's nothing like that. That would mean there's something running around in the universe that God doesn't control. But God rules over all things. There's intelligence behind it. He has not promised to tell you what the purpose is. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind, especially when tragedy strikes your family and you try to figure out why it happened. You may not ever be able to figure out why it happened, but you can be assured there is a why. There's a reason. 
You know, God keeps his own counsel on these things, but there is a reason. If the lot is cast in the lap and it matters what a dice comes up, it certainly matters if a loved one perishes, if a loved one dies or some tragedy strikes you. It certainly matters. These things matter. We just don't always know what they are. We'll talk about more about that later. We talked, uh, number four, events fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well, and we're going to have to get uh, to this more. This is really the nub of the matter, isn't it? How can God rule something and ordain something and we have any freedom or choice in the matter? We're going to talk about that later, so we'll just skip that one for now. And the affairs of nations, very relevant these days as uh, our nation has invaded another nation and as we're uh, involved in the war and we're praying for the soldiers and for our president to make wise decisions, etc. But we know that ultimately it's God that rules over these events. And so it's reasonable for us to pray to God about what's going on in Iraq. God would never say to us, I don't care what's happening in Iraq. It's just a little Mideastern country and it doesn't matter to me. He would never say that. Nor would he say, I care very much what's going on in Iraq, but I can't do anything about it. It's not in my jurisdiction. It's not under my control. There's a dictator over there named Saddam Hussein and I just can't get to him. I mean, he doesn't listen to me anyway. He's a hard-hearted individual and there's nothing I can do. Well, we know we, that God would never say anything like that and so therefore we can pray for Saddam Hussein, for decisions he makes, for the president. for the. We can pray to God about those things because all of these things fall under his area of control. There's nothing irrelevant in prayer. We can pray anything because God rules over all things. And you know, the funny thing is, the fact of the matter is most Christians, even if they struggle with the whole issue of, of um, sovereignty and free will and all that, behave as though God's providentially in control when they pray, don't they? I mean, when you get down on your knees and pray, you're acting like God has power to do something about this event in this matter. And I think that's very reasonable to do so. Okay? So he rules over the affairs of nations. Job 12, 23. Um, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. How does he do that? Well, we don't always know how he does it, but he does raise up one nation and he uh, lowers another. Acts 17, 26. By the way, the, the best book for this by far, Job 12, 23, is the book of Daniel. That seems to be what the theme of the book of Daniel is, that God raises up one nation and lowers another. It's the history of the world, the rise and fall of the world. One nation rises and it falls, and another nation comes and takes its place. And God rules over all things for his glory. And basically, all aspects of our lives are under the providential control of God. Daily provision, we could pray, give us today our daily bread. So therefore, we should follow our Lord's example every time we eat and give thanks to God. He gave thanks to God and so should we. we. We don't eat except that God has provided this food for us. And by the way, I really believe with all my heart that this is what it means when the scripture says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You eat because God said so. I really think that's what Jesus meant when he was speaking to the devil and saying, God has not said I can eat yet. I certainly have the power to turn stones into bread, but he hasn't given the word. When he did, if he gave me the word, I would do it. But he has not given me the word. And so I don't eat except at the word of God. Man does not live on bread alone. No, we live on the word of God. And the word provides food. And so as a result of that, then we eat. And that's a good way to think, isn't it? Everything we eat comes to us from God. It's a, it's a gift. Life decisions of every kind. You may think that you're making decisions and that God is not involved or doesn't care, that he doesn't influence you in some way. Um, but he does. Jeremiah 10.23 is just one of many verses that teaches this. Book of Proverbs is full of this. You know, you make decisions, but God determines your steps. You know, uh, you think you're making a reply, but the, the uh, reply is actually from the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. This is a clear providential kind of verse. Success or failure. No one from the east or west can, or from the desert can exalt a man. But it is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. Children are given as a gift from God. Uh, Psalm 127, verse 3. Talents and gifts also given. This is just review. We talked about this last time. But I want to set the table again for the clear uh, scope of providence. None of these things happen except they come to you by the will of God. Uh, so if you have a talent and a gift you should give thanks to God. Who makes you different than anyone else? And what do you have that you didn't receive? So all the things you have that you consider yours, anything of which it can be said, mine, this is mine, it's been given to you by the providence of God. All of those things are God's. Uh, he rules over human governments. The king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases. What does that verse mean to you? When you look at that, Proverbs 21.1. 1. 
What does that mean? The king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases. Ah. So how does it relate to Pharaoh and Moses? <coughs> yeah, he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would do all ten plagues. You know, that's a very interesting thing. I think a, a really good example of this in the Bible, there's several, there's many actually, but a really good example is in the book of Esther. Do you remember in the book of Esther, one of the interesting things about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned once, not once. The only book in the Bible in which he's never mentioned. And yet his providential ruling over the events of that book are so clear. His stamp is all over it. And that's, what, that's the genius of the book because that's the way providence comes to us in our lives. Providence doesn't come to us and say, I'm God, I did this. It just happens. And you kind of have to see the hand of God in it, just as you do in the book of Esther. But do you think it was just an accident that the night before Haman was to spring his plot, that the king couldn't sleep and said, bring me the records of recent events. And This particular book is brought to him. He opens it and reads about a plot that was foiled by some Jewish guy, Mordecai. And was anything ever done for him? No. Well, let's see if we can reward him in some way. I mean, the night before. What are the odds of that? That's providence right there. He couldn't sleep. Why couldn't he sleep? Because the king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord. God would not let him sleep. He was agitating him, stirring him up. And then, where did the idea come from to get a book of the chronicles of the reign of the kings of Persia? Where did that... Why don't you... Hey, why don't you get that book? You know, the one with the record. <laughs> oh, hey, there's an idea. And so, the, it pops in his mind and there he goes. Now, I don't, I don't want to suggest too much about this because I don't know how providence works. I just know that this verse is true and I really believe that Esther is a good example of how God directs the heart of a king to make a certain decision. And all of it lines up so beautifully. I think the book of Esther is a great testimony to providence, how God rules over things. All right, that was all review. We did that last time. Now we get to the problem of evil. Now let me ask a question. Why would this even come up? Why is the next page, as you turn over and look at it, why are we getting to the issue of evil? How does it relate? Okay. That's right. If God is so clearly ruling over things, then how can this happen? Why didn't he direct the king's heart away from gassing a bunch of Kurds 15 years ago or Adolf Hitler from doing so? Why? I mean, if you can do this, why didn't you do it then? These are the kinds of questions that pop in our minds. And it's a hard issue, isn't it? Uh, any, anybody who believes in an omnipotent uh, and good God struggles with the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and if he's good, then how do we end up with the things that we do in history? That's a problem. And so we have to face it. And it wouldn't be right for us you know, in systematic theology to say, gee, that's a toughie, let's just skip it. And let's go around it and just say it just all works out. Now, let's do, let's do what we can to try to understand it. What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does God actually cause the actions that people do? And if he does, is not God responsible for sin? That's the question that we're trying to deal with here. Now, the procedure that's laid out is very important. If we're going to try to answer this question, we have to answer it the right way. The procedure would be then to look at scriptures that most clearly deal with this question. Are there any scriptures in which God is dealing with evil things and that describe how God deals with them? Are, are there any guidelines that scripture gives us? Note there that in every case, God is never shown doing anything evil. That's a very important thing, isn't it? There's nowhere in scripture that you'll see God doing something evil. But there are many verses in which God seems to ordain or to lead evil. And so... Always there's a human actor or sometimes a demonic or satanic actor that carries out the evil, but it's never God who does it. And I think that's important to keep that in mind. And it may end up being a key piece to the puzzle as we try to understand how this works. God brings about evil actions through the willing actions of moral creatures. Scripture also never blames God for evil, uh, nor, it sh nor shows God taking... I should read nor nor shows God taking any pleasure in evil, nor does it excuse humans for the evil they do. These are important things. God never does any evil. God never delights in any evil as such. But God uses evil to accomplish very good ends, and he judges people for the evil they do even while using the evil for good ends. 
They're accountable and responsible for what they do. Um, and so that, that's generally what we're going to be discussing. Let's look at some case studies, a couple of case studies of how God rules over um, events that are seen to be evil. Let's look at uh, uh, Genesis 37. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. This case study is the case study of Joseph, of course, and many of you are familiar with this story and even where I'm going to go with it. But that's all right. It's still worth looking over uh, these things. The story of Joseph uh, basically carries us from, um, from Genesis 37 up to the end of the book of, of uh, Genesis and on implications really even into Exodus chapter 1 as another king rules over Egypt not knowing Joseph. But anyway, it's a major part of the book of, of um, Genesis. Now, Joseph is introduced as the favorite son of Jacob. Why do you think he's his favorite son? Yes. from Rachel, who is who he thought he was going to get from his father-in-law. One of the funniest verses in the Bible, I'm sure it wasn't funny to Jacob, was the next morning he awoke and behold, it was Leah. I mean, how did that happen, you know? And you have to get into the veiling customs and all that to say, or maybe there was some alcohol, but I really have no idea. All I know is the next morning he awoke and behold, it was Leah. How can that be? But he wasn't hoping for Leah. It was Rachel he wanted. And so, therefore, when Rachel's son, Joseph, was born, he was the cherished one and the chosen one probably to be the heir of the whole clan. And he was given a beautiful coat which showed him, I think, to be the heir. And he was chosen and loved by his uh, father. And he has an awful lot of brothers, okay? There's a lot of competition here. Sibling rivalry is nothing new and actually manifested very greatly here. Joseph makes the situation worse by telling them what his dreams were. Do you remember that whole account? You know, I had a dream that all of your shafts of wheat bowed down to mine. What do you think of that? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'll tell you what I think. But at any rate, um, and then the sun and the moon and the stars and all the planets and everything bows down to me. And it's just, wow, this is a little too much. Um, so he, he wasn't wise, one might say, uh, in, in relating this. But the fact of the matter is, his brothers were very jealous of him. Look at verse 4, Genesis 37, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word against him. Now, this is very important. Their hearts were filled with hatred. Okay, God is not pleased with that. He didn't do that. You must understand that. As we're going to unfold the story here, it was not God who filled Joseph's brothers' hearts with hatred and jealousy toward Joseph. That was none of God. But God is going to use that hatred, isn't he? It's stored up in their hearts like, like a water supply, but God opens a specific sluice gate through which the water is going to flow to accomplish an end. The end will not be Joseph's murder out in the desert. He has a different plan. The hatred stored up is their responsibility and they deserve to be judged for it. But what God does with the hatred is very interesting. That's what I'm saying. And so this is how God keeps, as it were, his skirts clean from the wickedness that they want to do. It's not God's hatred toward Joseph. That's their responsibility. But he's going to use that pent-up hatred to accomplish something great. Uh, there's other verses like verse 5, verse 8, and verse 11 that clearly depict a building animosity between the brothers and Joseph. They're ready to kill him. They can't speak a kind word to him. All of that is their own responsibility. And this becomes a key issue when you're dealing with the doctrine of providence. What the individual person intends, what he has in mind is determinative for his own judgment. Do you understand that? What did Judas have in mind? What did Pilate have in mind? What was he doing there? What did the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priest, what did they have in mind? What were they thinking? What did they understand? On the basis of that and the decision they make, they will be judged. But God's playing a higher game. He's doing something bigger than all that. And so he's always free from the evil and using people's evil. But their evil is their own. In this case, the evil is jealousy and hatred. And it's their own. They stored it up. It's not Joseph's fault. Now, you could say he shouldn't have told them their dream, his dreams. He shouldn't have done this. So that's all true. But that should not have incurred hatred. Not at all. Okay, well, what ends up happening? Well, you know the story. Basically, what ends up happening is he goes out to find his brothers, 
They see an opportunity. They want to kill him. One of them speaks up and says, what would we gain by killing him? What is the motive there at that particular moment? What are they thinking? Personal gain. God, I believe, is directing the conversation. The desire for personal gain at the expense of a brother is wicked, is it not? To, to be able to get some material benefit out of a sl- selling a brother into slavery is evil and wicked. Is God responsible for that? Did He put that motive in their hearts? No, He did not. That's their own wickedness and tempted by the devil as well. But God's going to use it, isn't He? How does He use it? He uses it to save Joseph's life. He uses it to save Joseph's life. What would we gain by killing him, right? Meanwhile, there's another brother, the oldest brother, um, who's trying to save him so that nothing will happen. He can bring him back. So there's all kinds of forces at work. They end up selling him to some Ishmaelites and he goes into Egypt. He goes into slavery. Now, in the end, you know what happens. There's the seven years of, of plenty in the land and the seven years of famine. God raises Joseph up to a position of authority and power in Egypt. Meanwhile, in Palestine, the promised land, which isn't theirs yet. They haven't gotten it yet. They're strangers in the promised land. They're just renters. They're just squatters, really. Um, They have to leave the promised land, don't they? Okay. Now, what happens? So, it's very interesting. Uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, receives the bloody garment, the coat of many colors from Joseph, covered with animal blood. They'd fake their father out. And what did Jacob feel when he saw that garment? What, what, what was he feeling at that moment? Grief. Of what level? Well, maybe among the highest you're going to find in Scripture. He is absolutely almost destroyed by this. It's just absolutely devastating to him that he would, he would be dead. And he never gets over it, does he? This is very important because later we're going to talk about how to minister to suffering people. The fact of the matter is it's very tough when tragedy strikes and, you know, you say, well, God's got some plan. Well, that's not very comforting, is it? You know, God's working out a plan. You may not know what it is. Well, it's really tough when you're holding the bloody garment there in your hand. It's very, very, very tough to see God's plan there. Very tough. And what's fascinating to me about the case is that God just lets him twist at the end of a breeze there. He lets him dangle. He marinates him in it for a long, long time. It's, it's fascinating to me how tough God is with Jacob on this. Why do I say that? Because when word comes back from the brothers, the brothers go down to buy green, they discover that, that, jo- that Joseph is alive, he's there, he go back. To get Jacob to leave the promised land and come back to Egypt is no small accomplishment. What gets it done? God speaks to him and tells him, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. What does that mean? He's going to be standing by your deathbed when you die. Okay, I'll go. Now, here's the question. God, why didn't you say something for years when I was crying every night for my dead son and you didn't say a word? You didn't reveal anything to me. You just let me twist at the end of a rope, suffering and grieved for some big plan, some big purpose. Well, yes, actually, for a big purpose. Meanwhile, you've got Joseph's grief. I mean, that's pretty tough. What did I do? And he gets sold into slavery and then he maintains his integrity with Potiphar's wife and it gets him in even more trouble. You know, you would be tempted to get a little hardened in your heart toward God. It's like, this is what happens to me when I try to do good things. Every time I try to do something good, it only ever gets worse. But Jacob praises his son Joseph in poetry at the end, says, your arms stayed limber and soft toward God. You didn't, you didn't get tough and hard, but you kept useful to God. And as a result, you were ready when the time came. And what? ready for what? Well, ready to rule over Egypt. And for what? So that his family would survive a famine. Look at 45.5. Genesis 45.5. Somebody read this for me if you would. Now, what does that verse tell you about Joseph's perspective on the situation? How does he see it? God sent me here. Now, how could you possibly come to that conclusion? You got thrown into a cave, pulled out of a cave, sold to the Ishmaelites, went down to Potiphar, got in even more trouble by just being righteous. And you're telling me that God did that? 
That's exactly what Joseph says. God sent me here to save lives. And not just your lives, the lives of many Egyptians as well and many others. God sent me here to save lives. Look now at, at uh, 50.20, Genesis 50.20. It's very interesting. Once Jacob is dead and Joseph still second in charge in all of Egypt, the brothers come back sniveling to jo Joseph. They, they still think he's got to have a vendetta and he certainly has the power to you know, unleash his spleen on them if he wants to. And they say, oh, right before he died, our father said, you know, don't do anything to them and all that. What a lie. I mean, they haven't really changed at all. Um, and he said, look, he, you know, he said no such thing, but don't worry. Don't worry, because you're still not thinking about this whole thing right. You're not thinking about it right. Somebody read 5020 for me, if you would. Right, now this is vital, isn't it? You, uh, wouldn't you know, providence of God. I'll have to throw that one out. Okay. You intended it. God intended it. Isn't that what he says? This is very important. You've got to follow this now. Okay? Who did, what does intend mean? What does it mean to intend? purpose, to have a plan, to work out the plan. Did his brothers have a purpose in this matter? Oh yeah, they did. You intended it. Did God have an intention in this matter? Yes. What's the it? What are we referring to here? Well, the whole story, right? The selling of Joseph into slavery in Egypt would be a shorthand way of saying it. So you're telling me, Joseph, that God intended that? God meant for you to be sold as a slave into Egypt and have all these hard things happen. He intended that. Jo what would Joseph say? Yes, he did. He absolutely did. He purposed this. God worked this out. He had this worked out before the foundation of the world. Yes, he intended it. Now, this is what I'm saying. On judgment day, is it going to matter what the brothers intended? Will it matter for them? Oh, you better believe it will. The fact that they intended it for evil matters for them in their case. The fact that God intended it for good shows that he's just working at a higher level than we are. He's accomplishing things at a much higher level than we are. And it's always good. The things that God does are always, in the end, good. Because God is good. And yet there is an it that he's intending that may seem evil along the way to our perspective. When you're there at the bottom of the pit and you think you're going to be killed by your brothers, or when you're languishing in prison, you know, in Egypt and think that God's forsaken you, you may say, how can this possibly be good? If God is good, how could he do this to me? I'm just saying that there's something bigger happening. Now, God has given us this story so that we may apply it to all the stories. All right? But I'm just telling you, we don't always know how it clicks in, and, and God may not give us another story. We don't need many other illustrations, but we do have one other better than even this one, and it's the death of Christ. Look, if you would, in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 23. If the story of Joyce, Joseph is poignant on this matter, the story of Christ is even more so. In Acts 2.23, somebody, if you would, read that. You can either read it out of the Bible or just off the sheet, whatever you'd like. Somebody read that for me, if you would. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. All right. This man, who's he referring to? He's referring to Christ. This is Peter's Pentecost uh, Day sermon. This man was handed over to you. Who's the you? Well, his audience, the Jews, the Jewish people. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You understand that? Foreknowledge is not just that God knew it would happen. Oh, no, it's stronger than that. He was handed over to you by his foreknowledge. So it's a pretty powerful thing if it can accomplish something like that. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose. That's just a way of getting across a very strong Greek word that, word that says that God had ordained and set this thing before the foundation of the world. He had established that Jesus would die in this way. He was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you you Jews, you people who are listening to me, you, with the help of wicked men, 
put him to death by nailing him to the tree. Now, what is the implication of the second half of the verse? I mean, think about Joseph's brothers and God. What is Peter saying about the Jews there? Yeah. And are they accountable for that? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe they are responsible for what they did. It was their actions that put him to death. They were active in the matter. And they used the help of wicked men to do it, but they did it, and they're accountable. Look over uh, another chapter, at chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Two more chapters over. Peter and John uh, have been persecuted for doing a miracle. They're released. They go back to their people, and they pray. And I'll tell you what, just to have a prayer meeting like this in this church, I would love to have one. After they were pray- after they finished praying, the place where their meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. What an incredible thing. I'll tell you what, I, I, if it ever happens to the church, you'll, you'll kick yourself if you miss that prayer meeting. So, and you don't ever know which one it's going to be, so that would advocate that you be at all of them. So uh, just come when we have our quarterly corporate prayer meeting. Don't miss any of them. Just come on and, and we'll see what God does. Um, But look what he says in verse 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you see that? They were just right on divine timetable. They were doing exactly what God had decided and determined should happen. But they did it. They're the ones that did it. You see what I'm saying? And so on Judgment Day, it's going to make a big difference why you acted the way you did. Is it going to matter um, that Judas was not intending to fulfill Scripture and to help our salvation along, but just wanted 30 pieces of silver out of the deal? Is that going to matter for Judas? Oh, yes, it's going to matter huge what his motives were. How about Annas, the high priest, who was jealous of Jesus and hated him and was plotting against him? Is it going to matter what his motives were? You better believe it's going to matter. What about Pontius Pilate, who knows very well that Jesus is innocent and as a coward won't do anything about it, though he's a Roman governor with all the power he needs to let an innocent man go? Is he going to stand accountable for that? Yes, he's going to stand accountable for that. But God was doing something higher, wasn't he? What was God doing? He was saving your soul and mine too. So can God use wicked and evil actions to bring something good out of it? The death of Christ is the paradigm example. There's never been a wickeder, more evil, more vile action in all of human history. I don't care what's happened to you in your life. I don't care what evil is perpetrated now in the world. Nothing is as evil as the death of Christ because he was a perfect, sinless man who didn't do anything to anybody except help and heal and bless. And he was put to death for no reason at all, humanly speaking. He was innocent. He did nothing wrong and they put him to death. So it's the, it's the most vilest, most evil thing that's ever happened because of who he was. He was the incarnate Son of God. It was an incredible action. And yet out of that has come more blessing, more good things, more people up in heaven now praising God, more hospitals, more healings, more beneficence and orphanages, and just a river of blessing has come from the cross of Jesus Christ out of that one evil action. And so it's clear from these two examples that God intends evil things for good. He does. He wills and intends evil things. But he himself doesn't do anything evil. Do you see that? Instead, he uses the built-up animosity and wickedness and evil of people. Judas's greed, Annas's jealousy, Joseph's brother's selfishness and sibling rivalry. He uses these sins that he did not do anything to put there. He uses them like a water power to accomplish all kinds of good things and they're accountable for the wickedness can you understand that it's hard to understand isn't it but it is the clear teaching of these two examples god intends it and he brings it about any questions we can stop now for a minute if you have any questions yeah well the scripture seems stronger than he allows this man was handed over to you by god's set purpose and foreknowledge that doesn't sound like allow to me It's stronger than that. And I think what it is is that language kind of fails us here. Okay? He allows it so strongly that it happens. Okay? So I don't know if if, if we could use that kind of language. I think what I'm saying is 
instead of stoning Jesus a year into his ministry, they crucify him three years into his ministry. How did that happen? He stopped it from happening, you see. They wanted to kill Jesus early on, didn't they? I mean, early on. They wanted to push Jesus off the cliff after his first sermon in Nazareth. Remember that? Oh, that was a good moment, I'll tell you what. I mean, what an auspicious beginning to the ministry. You know, your own hometown wants to push you off a cliff. And Jesus, you remember, just walked right through them and went on his way. So God was clearly ordaining the time. His time had not yet come. So I think that it's stronger than just allow. He is working out a plan. Well, that is the question of providence, isn't it? And I guess what I want to say, I want to ask a question. Where do we ever get the idea that something that God wills, that we are free from responsibility in that matter? Let me show you an example. I'll show you a very good example of this. Look at, at, at Isaiah chapter 10. All right? And this is where I'm going to say that, that God can will something evil, but then hold accountable <laughs> the person who does it. And there's actually numerous places that teach this, but Isaiah 10 is one of the, one of the better ones. Yeah, Isaiah 10, verse 5 and following. Now, I, I just really quickly want to set the, set the stage here. Okay, What's happening is the northern king, kingdom of Israel is idolatrous and wicked. Remember that God's people broke into two kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom of Israel, idolatrous and wicked. Southern kingdom of Judah, not much better. Okay? So God ordains that the Assyrians are going to come in and put an end to the history of the northern kingdom. He ordains this. The Assyrians were the biggest, baddest empire that there was of the time. They were the ancient Nazis. They were horrendous people. And he says, okay, I'm bringing the Assyrians. And that's a, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a challenge. And that's the book of Habakkuk deals with it later on the Babylonian side. It's a trouble. How can you use these filthy, awful pagan people to come and destroy your own people? It does, it's strange. But God ordains it. And he does it because... Israel is so wicked and they've broken the commandments. Look what God says. It's very interesting. In Isaiah 10, verse 5 and following. Look what it says. Woe to the Assyrian. Now, who is God zapping here through the prophet? He's coming after the Assyrian. Huh, interesting. He's bringing the Assyrians to accomplish his ends, right? He's bringing the Assyrians to punish his people. And now what is he doing through the prophet? He's saying, woe to you, Assyrians. Look what he says now. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. Okay, it's God's anger against his own people and he's got a rod in his hand and he's going to smack his own people with the rod of the Assyrians, right? But he's going to punish the rod for doing it. I'm telling you, it's, it's just fascinating. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him, look at that, I dispatch him. I send him against a godless nation. Who's he talking about there? Who's the godless nation? Northern Kingdom, Israel. He dispatches them against a godless people. What a terrible, terrible thing to say about his own people, but it was true. I dispatch him. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch, snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Look at verse 7, though. Key verse. Somebody read verse 7 for me, if you would. Okay, stop there. Why does God bring up what the Assyrian intends at this point? Why is it important what the Assyrian intends? Oh, it makes a huge difference for the Assyrian. Because of what the Assyrian intends, God's going to judge him for what he's doing. You see what I'm saying? He is sent at God's will to punish his own people, and then God's going to judge him for it. And he's going to judge him huge, as a matter of fact. Because he's going to overreach himself. He's going to go too far. He's going to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. He's going to get right up to the walls of Jerusalem. He's going to boast against God. He's going to be arrogant and say that, oh, this God's like all the other gods. I've conquered every other nation. I conquered this one too. They're all the same. I can take on any God. Oh, yeah? One night, 185,000 of his troops died. That's called woe. All right? Woe to you. And he says, I'm going to put a ring in his nose and bring him back where he came from. And he went like a big beast, like an ox. He turned because God turned. There's a little ring in his nose and off he goes. All right? What is happening here? Verse 7 tells you why. He intends something different than God intends. God is doing what he's doing for his own glory. 
for the glory and honor of His name. His people should have loved Him. They should have followed His commandments. They should have obeyed Him. The Assyrian doesn't give a hoot about any of that. What does the Assyrian want? Plunder and loot. That's what he cares about. And so God's going to judge him. Is this hard to understand? Yes. But this is Scripture's answer. God is able to use the Assyrian and then judge him for it because of his intentions. Let's look at another example. Another example is in um, Matthew 18. No, I'm sorry. We'll go, we'll go further on. That's, that's one case. Matthew 26. Yeah, Matthew 26. All right, Matthew 26, um, verse 20, verse 20 through 25. Somebody read that if you would. Matthew 26, verse 20 through 25. This is the story of the Last Supper and Jesus identifies his betrayer. All right? But I want to focus on what Jesus says about him. It's a very interesting statement he makes. They try to find out who it is and in verse 23, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And then in verse 24, he says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Well, what does that mean? What is that pointing toward? What is he talking about? His crucifixion crucifixion has been foreordained. It's been written down. Does Jesus have that in mind? Oh, all the time. Remember when Peter tries to rescue Jesus in the garden? And Jesus says, put your sword away. If I were trying to get out of it, I wouldn't use you. Okay? I don't know who you think you are, but your little sword isn't going to carry much weight against 600 Roman soldiers. So just go ahead and put your sword away. If I wanted to get out of it, I'd call on the Father and He would put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And they would get the job done in a quick way, not that I even need them. Because all he had to do was say his name and they fall over. Mm. So the fact of the matter is, I don't need you and I don't need the angels and I'm not trying to get out of dying. For he says, how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I've got to be arrested. I've got to go. I've got to die. There's no other way. So put your sword away. Now, what is he saying here about Judas, though? He's saying the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. That includes a betrayer, doesn't it? There must be a betrayer. It was written. All right, including the amount of silver, 30 pieces of silver. It was all ordained ahead of time. Take the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 12, and throw them into the potter's house and the whole thing. Just amazing. All of it was written out ahead of time. The Son of Man will go just as it is foreordained, just as it is written in Scripture. But what's the next thing he says? But woe to the man who does it. Now, how do you put those two together? Well, I think you go back to Isaiah 10, verse 7, and say it's not what he intends. What does Judas intend? Well, he's a thief helping himself to what was in the money bag, it says in John's Gospel. He intends 30 pieces of silver, actually. Is that a big sin? Oh, it's unbelievably huge. He sees three years of the greatest miracles that anyone had ever done and all he sees out of that is a chance for 30 pieces of silver. He doesn't see the incarnate Son of God bringing the kingdom of heaven. There's something hugely wrong with Judas, maybe one of the most wicked men that's ever lived, to be able to look at all that goodness, all that miracle and see... Worse than Joseph's brothers. See, 30 pieces of silver, I'll trade them in. And so what does Jesus say? Now, I want to go even deeper. He says, woe to the man who does it. And then what does he say? He makes a comment about him. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Why then was he born? Who knit him together in his mother's womb? God did. God wanted Judas born. So God chose something that was not better for Judas. And so I guess what I'm saying here is that you can say, well, did Judas have a free will in the matter? What do you think? Do you think he's sitting there looking at the scriptures and trying to figure it all out? Do you think the Roman soldiers were trying to fulfill prophecy when they gambled for Christ's clothing? They didn't know any of the prophecies. They weren't reading Psalm 22. They were just doing what came naturally to them. 
Judas was doing what came naturally to, to him. Okay, and what came naturally to him was greed and selfishness. God didn't or, didn't regenerate him. He didn't save him from it. He used it instead. Now, what I'm saying is this is a hard teaching, yes, but this is the world we live in. There's all kinds of hard things that are going on and there is a God who rules over them. What comes out of that? Scripture that prophesies details that we can't even imagine, 30 pieces of silver, so we have confidence in the Scripture and we get a Savior who gets betrayed and dies for us. That's what we get out of it. What does Judas get out of it? Well, for a short time, he got 30 pieces of silver. He didn't hold it long, though. Were you going to say something? No. So Judas gets the 30 pieces of silver. Was it worth it? <laughs> well, you answer me. Jesus said it would be better for him if he had never been born. And he was born. So God chooses things that are not necessarily best for the individual. Any questions about that? I mean, this seems to be the... Yes, Bob. I was just going to comment. In every case, God is looking at the heart. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. Because the heart. Yeah. He's looking at what he intends. The Assyrian, he's looking at what the Assyrian intends. He's looking at what Judas intends. And it matters what we intend. He's looking at what, what Joseph's brothers intend. But he's intending something good. In each one of these cases, it's something good. Do you see that? What good thing came out of the Assyrians invading northern Israel? What good thing came out of that? The people returned. Some people repented of their sins. And at least this much was the case. God established his holiness and he was consistent with his covenant promises of curses and blessings. He established himself as a covenant-keeping God and his holiness and righteousness went on record. He's willing to do this to his own people for the sake of his holiness. So good things come in every case, but at the human level, nothing but sin and wickedness and badness. Isn't that strange? And that's kind of how it works in human history too. Let's keep going. The problem of evil... Basically, what we're saying is that God never does anything evil, okay? But he overrules evil for his own purposes and his own, um, own glory. There's a number of verses that teach these things. Uh, at the bottom of page 3, uh, you get one. Um, Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. The word disaster there is ra'ah, which is usually translated evil, actually but the NIV helping us along a little bit, softening it a little bit. The word create is bara. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God creates ra'a. So you translate that however you like. If you'd like to translate it, I create disaster, that's fine. What I'm saying is at the human level, it looks like disaster. At God's overall level, it's always for good. That's what I'm saying. Always something good coming out of it. Also, he says in Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Uh, Proverbs 16.4. And then Psalm 76.10. For the wrath of man shall praise you. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, we're just shaking our fists at God. And he turns it into praise. He absolutely can do this. He's been doing it forever. He's able to take wicked, evil, lousy things that people do and turn them into incredibly glorious salvation plans. I think that's wonderful. I really do. I think it's great. And uh, Romans 9, the greatest example of all, you can read that, uh, how God raises up Pharaoh, and Marge mentioned that definitely. However, verse uh, on page 4, middle of page 4, God hates evil, never does evil, and is never to be blamed for evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Psalm 5 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. And then a very key verse, you can put a star next to this one. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Do you see that? Where does evil come from? Never from the mind of God. It's just not where it starts. He doesn't do that. But he uses it. You see what I'm saying? The evil starts in the mind of, or heart of an individual. And a Syrian wants to build an empire. And a Syrian looks at a nation and says, I want their gold. God says, all right, we'll let that thing percolate for a while. And at the right time, it's going to spill over into the boundaries of, of Israel. But not until I say. 
And so God rules over this. But the evil in the heart, he didn't put it there. Just like he didn't put this evil in the heart of Joseph's brothers. He didn't put it there. That's something that they're responsible for. So God hates evil. He never does evil. He's never to be blamed for evil. The key concepts then, God uses evil for his purposes. He never does evil himself and cannot be blamed for it. Now, if you say, I don't like this. I don't like this approach. I'm telling you the alternatives are worse. Stop and think about it now. Suppose if you look at that, if number one is not true, God does not use evil for his purposes and can do nothing with evil and brings nothing good out of evil. Why is that worse? Things are out of control and the bad stuff that happens to you has no purpose at all. I think that's scarier. I think that's much worse. It means that there's this evil thing running around the universe and God can't do anything about it and nothing good comes of it and it's just a waste all the time. All right? What about number two? What if number two is not true, that God never does evil himself and cannot be blamed for it? What if God does evil actively? What if he's involved in it? Well, then he's not God anymore. He's not good. He's not the God we know from Scripture. So these are the two key principles, and I'm telling you that the alternatives are worse, and they're not scriptural. They're not biblical. So this is kind of what we're left with. God hates evil, but he uses it. uses it for his own purposes and his own ends. Clearest example, Jesus' death. And he himself doesn't do anything evil and judges people for it uh, based on their own motives. God rightly blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. We've already covered this. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Turn the page. You can read these quotes later on if you want. Where did evil start? The big question. You know, if God is sovereign and all that, I mean, how did evil even start? Where did it come from? If everything came up out of the mind of God, where did evil come from? I'm going to ask you, what's the answer? Because I don't know. And I'm hoping one of you can tell me. I do not know the answer to this question. Somebody volunteer. Well, God created Satan and He's created him good. So where did it come from? He created him as his archangel, did he not? And Ruler angel, yeah, yeah, it seems to be. And he became very arrogant and proud. Yeah, but where did that come from? Where did that, that, you know, that came up somewhere? How did it happen? If not up out of the mind of God, how did it come? And, and just say, I don't know. Because <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't know. I'm just saying, I don't know how it springs up in this perfectly clean universe in which there's nothing, nothing at all but good things that God made, right? How did it start and, and God not be responsible for it? It's a hard question. And, and I'm just telling you, I don't know. And I don't know any theologian that does. They all say we don't know. Nobody is able to answer. It doesn't matter if they're Calvinist or Arminian. Or, nobody knows. Nobody does. All we know is that these things are true. God hates evil, would never do anything evil. He created everything good. Beyond that, we can't go. All right? Now, my question is, God warned Adam concerning evil, didn't he? Concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat it. From the day you eat it, you will surely die. Adam ate it. Okay? Now, my question to you is, what did Adam gain? What did he gain as a result of eating? Huh? He gained knowledge of what? evil. He did not gain knowledge of good. How do we know he did not gain knowledge of good? He already had that. Everything was good. He was, he was living good all the time. What did he add? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you can know good. And I'm glad about that because in the eternal state in heaven, we will know good and know evil. Uh, the, and, and no evil. There'll be no evil. All right. But I guess what I'm saying here is that God chose to let evil grow in this universe for a purpose. All right. And, and this is a very challenging thing, but as you look at it, the thing that Adam and Eve gained, if you can call it that, was a thorough education in evil. See, Adam lived another 900 plus years. When he's on his deathbed, say, now I'm going to pull up a chair and I want to talk to you. What have you learned about evil? What do you think he'd say? He'd say it's evil. <laughs> he'd say it's just evil and I wish I hadn't done it and I wish we'd never known anything about it. Well, the story didn't end when Adam died. It's been going on a long time. What have we learned? What have we learned about evil? It's evil. All right? And it, how bad is it? It's bad. It's bad. I mean, the 20th century is replete with how evil evil is. But it's not just the 20th century. It's just that we're more powerful now than we used to be and we can do bigger and more evil things. It, we've had a thorough education in evil and it still continues, doesn't it? And I'll tell you what, when it's all said and done and we're in heaven, we will have a memory, won't we? We'll still know. We'll remember. 
And how will we feel in our hearts toward evil? Hate it. Absolutely hate it. With a passion like unto God's. And I think that's the wisdom of God. He chose to let it unfold. He chose to let the story go out and control it. And in the end, bring something good out of it. That's what he chose to do with evil. That's the best answer I can give you. I can't go much better than that in terms of how evil sprang into the universe. All right, I want to finish with this practical ministry of the suffering. And if we get to the other stuff next week, fine. If not, let me go on to the next thing. But it's kind of important. How do we actually minister to somebody who whose son died, daughter died, who's facing illness, terminal illness, who's facing poverty or ruin or, or some of the terrible things that can happen in this world, of which there are many. How do we minister to somebody like that? Well, one of the things that I like to do is to teach very openly and clearly about this before you get in the situation. Because in the situation, it's really pretty hard to get theology across. Okay, That's not really the time for it. That's the time to sit next to somebody and cry with them and put your arm around them and that's it. And say very little. Just like Job's friends did at the, at the beginning. They did fine at the beginning. It's when they started to talk that they had problems. Okay, So just put an arm around somebody. You just cry. But there's certain ideas I want to get in your head that maybe will help you. And I, don't, I hope you won't need this but you know you might. You, you might have a tragedy that will happen to you, even this year or even this week. I don't know. Number one, God only intends ultimate good for his chosen people. I'm careful to say for his chosen people because you realize that that's who it's promised for in Romans 8. God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For Judas and the others, he didn't owe them anything. He doesn't owe them anything. All right, But I'm speaking about his people. God only intends ultimate good even if his means to that end are very difficult. I've thought much about the toughness of God in letting Jacob dangle for all those years. That's tough, isn't it? That God could have ended his suffering any time with a word, Joseph is alive. He's alive. You're crying for nothing. He's alive. He's, in, he's, in, he's doing very well. He's got a great career down there in Egypt. Why, why didn't God do that? Why not? Why didn't he tell him? It wouldn't have served his purpose. What do you think? What do you think Jacob would have done? He would have gone down. I'm going down there. He could have kept him from that. I, what I'm going to say to that is, God wanted him to suffer, actually, because He's sanctifying him. I mean, what kind of guy is Jacob at the beginning when you first meet him and all that? He's a scoundrel. And through suffering, yeah. We change through suffering, not through easy, comfortable times. And, and, yes. and Joseph, the, the bottom line is the family. Joseph was an idol. Possibly so. All right, God only intends ultimate good. Secondly, God is very compassionate. He does not stand far off from the suffering ones, aloof and satisfied that his plan is running perfectly. He sends relief to the suffering ones to help them through. He's not standing up there, well, hey, it's all running according to plan, and boy, it look good. it looks good from up here. I mean, it's looking really good. That is not our God. How do we know that? Jesus wept. That's, that's how you know. That To me, that's the greatest indication that our God is a compassionate God. Jesus wept right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's compassionate. Thirdly, God is willing to put his chosen ones through immense suffering and can even seem quite harsh in so doing. He's willing to do that, as we just were talking about. Fourth, God has power at any moment to alleviate all your suffering and bring you to incredible joy. If he chooses not to, it's only for his higher end, whatever that is. You realize that at any moment he can go like that and it's done. He can raise the dead. He can, do, he can do anything. If he chooses not to, it's because he's doing something. He's working on something. Fifth, this world is temporary and the suffering God puts us through is brief and, Paul says, barely worth comparing with God's ultimate good intentions toward us. Christ's resurrection forever changes earthly suffering for us. There's only so much suffering you can go through in this world, right? And it's nothing, says Paul, compared to what's coming at the end. Paul knew he suffered worse than probably any of us, any 10 of us put together. You read the list of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, you know what I mean. Three times he was beaten with rods, shipwrecked, spent a day and a night in the open sea. I mean, he had a tough life. Sixth, our focus should be on heaven and on God's eternal plans, not our immediate circumstances. Seventh, we should be open and trusting in prayer, committing our grief and pain to God 
as the psalmist model in many places. How many times do the psalmist pour out and say, God, this hurts. It's tough. I don't like this. What I'm going through is difficult. They model it for us, and so we should follow their example. As they suffered in prayer, we should pour it out to him. And eighth, our highest loyalty should not be to our own health, prosperity, or even loved ones, but to God, his kingdom, and his purposes. Ultimately, we should be gladly willing to sacrifice any earthly blessing for God's glory. We should be willing to. And if God chooses that and we didn't choose it, we still should be willing to let him do that. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the deep things that we've looked at tonight. It's hard, but Father, I feel that as we look at these scriptures, as we look at this topic, we are more ready and more prepared to face suffering than before we looked at it. We're ready, O Lord, um, to face even the suffering of loved ones, of children, of parents, of spouses. We're ready to face anything, Lord, if we trust in you. Oh, Father, we know that you're doing great things in this world and working out a great plan. Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust you in all things. Thank you for those that have come tonight. Help us, O Lord, to learn these lessons and put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.